questions and answers. Does science and scripture go hand in hand? Aren't all scientists liberal and agnostics? What can we learn from science that would provide evidence for a creator? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, let's listen to one of our breakout sessions taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. The theme was demolishing strongholds of unbelief. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Dr. Leslie Wickman shares part two of her message entitled, Exploring the Wonders of Creation Through the Lens of Science. I believe that science and theology complement rather than contradict each other. A lack of understanding about either field, either science or theology, can make people feel like they have to choose one or the other. But if you have a deeper and more complete understanding of each area, it enables us to embrace both without contradiction. After all, as uh, Francis Bacon and Galileo stated, God is the author of two books, both creation and scripture. And as St. Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And further, King David wrote in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we can just start with the notion that absolute truth exists about both God on the one hand and nature on the other. Then we have to agree that those absolute truths cannot logically contradict each other. Okay, So all truth is God's truth. Truth cannot con contradict itself. So the more we correctly understand about each field will give us a better understanding of the whole picture. Now our paths as individuals and as society to truth about God and truth about nature are iterative. In other words, we might take a couple of steps forward and then a corrective step backwards. And we see this throughout scientific history and it's indicative really of the process that happens with, with science. When properly practiced, science holds knowledge tentatively, acknowledging that new evidence might be discovered at any time that would make previous scientific theories or even scientific laws invalid. Now, as an example of this, let's look at the early Greek view of the sun moving around the earth, the heliocentric view. Copernicus postulated, and later Galileo made observations with his telescope, producing evidence that, in fact, the Earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around, as previously held as an obvious truth. Now, obviously, Galileo got into a lot of trouble with the church over that because it was really fundamental to the Aristotelian worldview that the Earth was at the center. It was not a, a church idea in the first place. It was actually Aristotle's idea. But the church had adopted this Aristotelian worldview as its own, and that's where the problem came from. So this was an example of broadening the human perspective and looking at traditionally held ideas from a larger frame of reference and working with more information. 
Now, a similar thought revolution or paradigm shift occurred when we moved from Newtonian physics to relativity theory. I'm not going to go off into a side lecture on relativity here, but suffice it to say that scientific concepts like gravity, time, and space itself, which we thought were fairly well understood, all got turned upside down in the process. And in the same way, no one can honestly claim to have God himself or all of Christianity completely and totally figured out. Certainly, Jesus himself presented a paradigm shift to the theology of the Pharisees. He was not what they were expecting in a Messiah. And as 1 Corinthians 13:12 reads, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now while Paul's words here were meant to apply to our knowledge and understanding of God, I believe they also serve as a worthy metaphor for our knowledge and understanding of God's creation as well, reminding that us that our access to full truth is tempered in this life by incomplete knowledge, limited understanding, and less than perfect interpretation of the data that we do have. This should lead us to practice our disciplines in science with healthy amounts of modesty, humility, and even skepticism. And on a personal level, as I go through life and do more research and investigations of my own, I continually revise my own understanding of various passages of scripture as well as my understandings of nature. And consider these thoughts from a couple of prominent scientists on how science and religion fit together. Albert Einstein, author of Relativity Theory in 1941, wrote, Religion without science is blind. Science without religion is lame. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. What a great attitude for a scientist exploring God's creation. And this next more recent quote is from a fellow ASA member, chemist Fritz Schaefer. He writes, The significance and joy in my science comes in the occasional moments of discovering something new and saying to myself, so that's how God did it. My goal is to understand a little corner of God's plan. I love that. A recent American Association for the Advancement of Science survey asked scientists whether they agreed with these two statements. Okay, so I'm going to read these for you. I believe in a God in intellectual and emotional communication with humankind, i.e., a God to whom one may pray in expectation of receiving an answer. By answer, I mean more than the subjective psychological effect of prayer. And the second statement was, I believe in continuation of the person after death into another world. Both of these statements are very theistic. They indicate belief in a personal God. Now, just before I have put the percentage of people that were in agreement with that, I want you to think to yourselves, what percentage of scientists do you think would agree with those two statements? And somebody who's not too shy, raise your hand and tell me what you... But another study, actually, that was quite interesting, came out of a study that was done by a professor at Rice University more recently. And she asked scientists in the United States how many would self-identify as Christian. And that percentage was even higher. It was 61% of practicing scientists in the United States self-identify as Christian. 
I thought that was just really encouraging because we tend to get from the media this perspective that the you know, science and faith are at opposite ends of the spectrum, and that is just not true. So anyway, I was very encouraged by not just this one, but the other study as well. Now, Billy Graham, who sometimes is considered the patron saint of modern evangelicals, makes some possibly surprising statements on the topic of science and religion. So he says, the Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption, and of course I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe God created humanity. Whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create humanity. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what men and women are and their relationship to God. So in other words, he's basically saying that the Bible is not a book of science, it's a book of theology, a book of redemption. You know, and if you think back on it, if you think if God had inspired the original writers of Scripture to write in terms of modern science or what we consider modern science today, and they made mention of things like dark matter and dark energy and relativity, it would have just sounded like nonsense and maybe even worse than that, kind of scary and spooky. So... God inspired the writers of Scripture to write in language that would be meaningful throughout the generations. Again, it's a, a message of redemption. So as I try to convey to my students, science is a tool for discovering God's creativity and wisdom in the wonders of his creation. Now, in the current scientific marketplace of ideas, the touch point for dialogue between science and theology often comes down to a discussion of probabilities with theists, like myself, pointing to the telos, or purposeful design in nature, and the unlikelihood of all this coming together just by random chance. And atheists, on the other hand, trying to improve the odds of providing, by providing more chances to get everything all just right. Now, the teleological argument is of particular interest in this discussion. It's perhaps the most commonly discussed argument for God's existence in today's science and technology-oriented society. And the teleological argument has been associated with great thinkers all the way back to Plato and William Paley. And this argument claims that the design and the order that we observe in nature point to a purposeful creator who put it all there for a reason. And even though perhaps thousands of extrasolar planets have been detected, now these are planets that are orbiting other stars. You maybe have read about some of these in the news recently. And perhaps 10% or more of sun-like stars could support planetary systems. All of our space exploration so far, and this is an important caveat when I say so far, has shown that our neighbors in space are not remotely capable of sustaining life of any complexity. But if the Earth is the result of some cosmic accident, surely we could find some attribute which could be improved upon. But to change any of the Earth's essential life-giving attributes would decrease the likelihood of life existing or continuing to exist. And when we look at all the special characteristics of the Earth that make it habitable, things like the distance from the sun, it's not too hot, not too cold, water in all three physical phases so we can have the life-giving water cycle, 
the thickness of Earth's crust, its day-night cycle, its axial tilt giving us seasons, the magnetic field that protects us from high-energy radiation, the unique moon that helps us keep time and also gives us our tides, and the various atmospheric characteristics that we have, we quickly realize that we live in a pretty unique and very improbable place. So we consider our solar system be to be typical to what might be found around other stars, which in itself is debatable. The very conservative odds of the Earth having just the most basic life-giving characteristics is about one chance in 50 million. Well, that might sound like improbable odds, but we'll get into something that's even more improbable than that. So let's take a look at some quotes from an, some more prominent scientists reflecting on all the amazing order that we observe in the universe. We start with knighted British astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle. He wrote in his book, The Universe, a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology. Next, we have George Greenstein, a theoretical astrophysicist from Amherst College who writes in The Symbiotic Universe. As we survey all the evidence, the thought insistently arises that some supernatural agency or agency writ with a capital A must be involved. And renowned author and theoretical physicist Paul Davies writes in The Cosmic Blueprint, the impression of design is overwhelming. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. All these guys are secular physicists and scientists. So th these are not coming from people who are practicing Christians. Science historian Frederick Burnham writes, the idea that God created the universe is a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. Now, if we look at just these nine local life-supporting characteristics of the Earth that we just mentioned, and assign probabilities based on just their likelihood of occurring in our solar system, where we already have a number of the right things going for us, such as the right galactic location, the right size and age of a star, and many other attributes, we can calculate the probability of all these attributes coming together on one planet to be about one chance in 50 million, like I just mentioned. But since they're really about 300 plus finely tuned life-supporting characteristics in the cosmos at large, a middle-of-the-road estimate of the probability for occurrence of all 300 plus parameters in this one place is about one chance in 10 to the 280th power. Okay, so that's a number that's pretty hard for us to get our brains around, okay? So I've got a couple of ways to think about it at least. There are an estimated 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe, okay? So the odds of picking just the one right atom out of all those is only one chance in 10 to the 80th power. We're still not even close to these odds. Imagine that we are able to someday discover that we live in a multiverse with 10 to the 80th universes in existence. And, and basically, that's one additional universe for every atom there is in the universe. Still, picking the one atom out of all those universes is odds of one chance in 10 to the 160th power. So we're still not even close to this number. Now, another... A friend of mine, actually Hugh Ross, with reasons to believe, came up with the analogy of this being like 
the same person buying just one lottery ticket for each drawing twice a week and winning every time he or she played twice a week, every week, for 50 years in a row. Okay? So I love this analogy. I share it with my students. I, I say, well, what would your reaction be if you read about this person in the newspaper that they've been doing this for 50 years in a row? And they immediately spawned, well, it must be rigged, right? And I say, bingo, same can be said for the universe. It's rigged for life. It ain't just going to happen that way, right? So, and even if we talk to statisticians, they, they will say that probabilities of anything less than one chance in 10 to the 50th power are not just improbable, but statistically impossible because too many things have to go just right. So in any case, to say this is extremely unlikely is an extreme understatement. <laughs> so we see evidence of this life-friendly fine-tuning, not just here in our solar system, but throughout the entire universe. For example, if the velocity of light were faster, too much radiation would reach the Earth. If the velocity of light were slower, we wouldn't be able to see and study as many stars. If the electromagnetic force were either stronger or weaker, chemical bonding would be dramatically altered, and we wouldn't have the right elements and compounds available for life. If the strong nuclear force that holds the nucleus of each atom together were stronger or good for longer distances, all the protons and neutrons in the entire universe would be stuck together in one gigantic mass. If the strong nuclear force were weaker, we couldn't have any atoms other than hydrogen, because you couldn't get bonding between the two protons. If the expansion rate of the universe were slower, the mass density were greater, or the gravitational constant greater, the universe would have collapsed back onto itself. If the expansion rate of the universe were faster, or the mass density lower, or the gravitational constant smaller, stars and planets could never have formed, because everything would be moving away from each other too fast. And there are, to date, over 300 of these life-friendly, finely-tuned characteristics that have been discovered throughout the universe. And the list keeps growing. This is called the fine-tuning argument, or the anthropic principle, or, as I've mentioned before, it's in line with the teleological argument. It's the observation that the universe has many characteristics that seem to be, have to be dialed in to support life here on Earth. So what about the laws of nature themselves? Where did they come from? In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, verse 25, the writer affirms that God established his covenant with day and night and the ordinances of heaven and earth. The physical laws that amicably direct the interactions between matter, space, energy, and time may seem very arbitrary, but they result in a highly ordered universe that provides the perfect conditions for life on our planet. And just try for a moment to imagine a universe without fixed physical laws. Without physical laws, the universe would be absolutely chaotic, having no order at all. And there's no reason that we know of that the physical laws that govern the universe must exist at all, let alone be what they are. For example, there are no innate reasons for the following, that masses must attract each other according to Newton's law of gravity, that large masses should bend space according to Einstein's theory of relativity, 
that oppositely charged particles should attract each other and similarly charged particles repel each other according to Coulomb's law, or that electricity should behave according to Ohm's law. And we've talked about this strong nuclear force, which is strong enough to overcome the electromagnetic repulsion between protons and holding them together in the nucleus of an atom. But then suddenly, beyond the edge of the average radius or diameter of a, the nucleus of an atom, it drops off to nothing. The physical laws of nature seem so capriciously dictated until we realize how impeccably they work together. Lydia Yeager, who's a physicist and dean at the Institut Biblique de Nogent-sur-Marne, <laughs> writes in her essay, my French is not so great, Cosmic Order and Divine Word, the law-like regularity and consequent modelability of natural phenomenon are the unquestioned assumptions that underlie all of scientific research. But common to all except for the most extreme relativists is the conviction that there is some basic deep order in nature that allows for the emergence of meaningful scientific practice. This view and the refrain of ultimate goodness, God saw all that he had made and it was very good, stands in clear contrast to the Babylonian imperial cosmology in which creation results from warfare in a power struggle between competing gods. In particular, laws of nature are not self-explanatory. To me, they are most powerfully interpreted as traces of the creator's handwriting. The physical laws point to a creator god of power, order, rationality, and care for creation, who according to the cause and effect logic of the cosmological argument, must exist outside and apart from the created realm of space, time, matter, and energy. Pat was talking about this a bit yesterday. This much, at least, can be read from the book of nature. Now, so overwhelming is the evidence of biofriendliness or life-friendliness in the universe that currently the main counter-argument to the involvement of some type of creative intelligence is the multiverse hypothesis. And the multiverse hypothesis speculates that there may be an infinite number, not just 10 to the 80th, but an infinite number of separate universes, each with a different set of physical laws and goes on to say that our universe is perhaps the only one among all of them to randomly get the set of physical laws just right so that life exists. Now, of course, there's no real way to either verify or falsify the existence of these additional parallel universes, so the multiverse theory technically doesn't qualify as a scientific argument. It's really more philosophical. And even if we concede such speculation on the existence of these additional universes, they still all rely on the existence of some set of orderly physical laws. And again, as the previous quote indicated, uh, they are not self-explanatory. There's no reason that physical laws have to exist at all. And this additional quote from Paul Davies really sums it all up. He says, the degree of biofriendliness we observe in the universe seems far in excess of what is needed to give rise to a few observers. If the ingenious biofriendliness of our universe were the result of randomness, we might expect the observed universe to be minimally rather than optimally biophilic or biofriendly. 
Note, too, that multiverse explanations still need to assume the existence of laws of some sort, so they do not offer a complete explanation of the law-like orderliness of the universe. Finally, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain certain features of the universe we do observe seems the antithesis of Occam's razor. It is an infinitely complex explanation. So, finally, a wise theologian from the 17th century left us with some very good advice on discussing difficult topics. He says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And I discuss all of this and more in my recent book, which you can find online. And I encourage you also to check out the American Scientific Affiliation at ASA3.org. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share this website with your family, your friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.